This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. I know you'd also almost forgotten I existed. I'm back. Uh, thank you very much to Patrick McGuire for looking after uh, the podcast last week. And I hope you enjoyed all of Nigel Fletcher's, uh, all of his counting down, every leader of the opposition, uh, which released a special podcast over over the Christmas holidays. Uh, this year, we've done leader of the opposition before. We've done prime ministers the year before that. This year, we're pitting them head to head. We're going to count down every general election since the uh, Great Reform Act of 1832 with Redbox's very own Lara Spirit. So we'll bring you that as an extra little bonus nugget on the podcast every Monday. So that's coming up in uh, just a moment. We've also got a fascinating chat with Ken Clark, political big beast Ken Clark, on all the Tory Prime Ministers he's had to deal with over the years and his suggestion that just maybe well-off patients should have to pay to see their GP. Let me know what you think about that. You can email me, matt at times.radio. First though, as ever, we kick off with our columnist panel and on Monday, it's Liberation. The Colonists with Libby Rachie, Libby Purvis, and Rachel Sylvester on Times Radio. Yeah, lovely to catch up with uh, two of our favourite columnists on a Monday morning is Libby Rachie, so it must be Libby Purvis. But happy New Year, Libby. Happy New Year, Matt. And a very happy New Year to Rachel Sylvester. Happy New Year. Nice to have you both. Uh, both back. Well, it's nice, well, it's nice to be me, but, uh, for me to be back. Uh, right, um, let's kick off with, I suppose, let's get it out of the way. Let's talk about the Royals. Libby, you're making the case in your columns today that you don't think that Harry is damaging the monarchy. I don't think it's it's a fatal damage, no, but I do think there are things to be done, and one of them is the succession, which is up to Parliament. I mean, the Cambridges are a very close family of four heirs who live and travel together, and God forbid anything ever happens, but we cannot have as the next heir a resentful and possibly mentally disordered expat who said he doesn't want to be a full-time royal. I mean, that seems to be entry-level obvious and one of the things which should be dealt with now. I mean, it's really sad, it's puzzling, it's full of mad contradictions, Harry's obviously in a lot of trouble, but this is a practical problem. And I think if Parliament does it, he can't at least say that it's family plotting against him. I just think we have to clear up the uh, line of succession, as they did in 2013 with allowing um, female heirs in. You know, it can be changed. Um, and this is your your point being that you you know he's he's stepped back from all of his other duties. He's stopped being the honorary 
colonel of this, that and the other, and not wearing his uniform and uh, and all of that. But in doing, if you are going to step out of the royal family, you should step out of the, the line of succession too. Yes, and I think also uh, the other thing which I do say towards the end of this column is that there should be a clear path. The Cambridges should be looking at this, and there should be a way at which at the age of, say, 21, uh, a young royal can say, actually, I don't want to be part of this. And there should be a clear and elegant and friendly way for them to step aside. The fact that Harry's been the first one to do it since the abdication has caused a lot of the trouble. There's been unclarity and he's then assumed everyone is plotting against him. But there has to be a clear route out. And I think that's uh, that's just a modern and humane way to look at it. It's interesting, that, isn't it, um, Rachel? Because uh, it's been notable that both Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer have kept well away from this, not commenting at all on what is increasingly becoming a, a, a big, big old mess for the royal family, who are part of the country's constitution. Yeah, absolutely. I think the interesting question raised by Libby's column is who, if anyone, would actually want the job if they had the choice? And one of the things about being a member of the royal family is it's sort of thrust upon you. You don't have the choice. And that's why the whole Harry situation has been such a bust up, because he had to sort of force himself out. So I think Libby's absolutely right. But it does raise questions about kind of what the role is. And also the fact that there are these, the, the, my problem with the kind of Harry and Meg Meghan thing is there are so many privileges that they've had and so many sort of rights and um, perks of the job. And they seem to want those without the responsibilities and the duties. It's back to that sort of Blairite rights and responsibilities thing. Um, and I think it's sort of there's two sides of the coin and they have to go together. And, and um, Libby's way forward would be a way to help that to happen, I think. The counter argument, Rachel, I suppose, is that if you start pulling at the thread of being able to opt in and out of it, doesn't the whole idea of a hereditary monarchy start collapsing? Yeah, I know that's the problem. I think that is an issue. But you can't have another situation like this. And I think Libby's right. You can't have um, Prince Harry as the sort of heir to the throne, really. It just doesn't work when he's chosen not to take on any of the duties and responsibilities that go with that role. Um, there's another point that I, I've sort of increasingly struck by reading the coverage of this, which I'm slightly getting bored of, I have to say. But that it all seems very, you know, it's obvious in a way, but it's very sad and it sort of goes back to the death of his mother. And though I was really struck by the fact in the book about the number of times he's sort of driven through that underpass in Paris where Princess Diana died. Um, but also that you, you know, there's a choice about how you respond to traumatic and tragic things that happen to you. And actually, do you let yourself be a victim or do you take a more positive approach and decide not to be defined by it, not to be a victim? Uh, and one of the things that Alice Thompson and I look at in the Past Imperfect podcast is that, you know, so many of the most successful people have actually overcome by refusing to be defined by their trauma and refusing to be victims. And I sort of feel as if Harry and Meghan could learn from that. Um, are you, are you going to buy the book and read it, Libby? I shall read the book just because I would like to get into context all the things which have been sort of said meanwhile. Uh, but I mean, like, like, like Rachel, I'm, we're all growing really, really weary of it. Um, I don't think that, that Harry and Meghan over in America really completely understand what life is like and what the concerns and worries are like in Britain at the moment uh, as they endlessly, endlessly whinge about things like somebody speaking 
harsh words to them and how William's saying, look, Harold, I just want you to be happy. And I swear on our mother's life, I want you to be happy that this does not, to Harry, constitute anything. So, oh, they've been, they've responded, not responded to my approaches at all, he says. Well, what was that if it wasn't a, a desperate attempt? It's, it, it's just very sad. And, uh, you know, we have to read about it. We have to think about it because these, if the monarchy matters at all, uh, but it's, uh, it, it's wearing, it's wearing us all down, I think. I think you're right. There's so much in it, which is, which goes beyond the sort of the narrow question of the level of support they got and the way that they were treated into just airing all of you, anything that's ever happened to you in your life in public, good and bad. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure that that's a, a healthy way to go about things. Uh, Nick emails in, uh, apropos of nothing. He says, possible new feature. How about one of your bright researchers finding a real-life ex-squaddy married to an aspiring former actress or model who could do a weekly news piece about their real-world problems as opposed to another former ex-unemployed squaddy married to an unemployed actress? It's a thought, Nick. If anyone, if anyone fits the bill, do get in touch. Uh, tell you what, let's, um, let's move on and, uh, and, and look, talk about other things, some of those uh, real-world um, uh, issues uh, that uh, people were talking about. Uh, Jamie in York gets in touch. The biggest news story of the day is regarding Rishi Sunak refusing to say if he uses private health care. Is that the biggest story of the day for you, Rachel? Well, no, I don't think it is. I think the biggest story of the day is the state of the health service. Uh, in terms of Rishi Sunak's um, own health care, I sort of, I agree with Rishi that transparency is a good thing um, and that if he if he's happy with his decision, you know, if he has used it, fine, he should tell us. Um, if he's not happy with the decision he made, morally or politically, he shouldn't have done it. Um, so I sort of think he shouldn't cover it up. If he's if he has used private health care, that's absolutely fine. But he just he he should say, to be honest. And it only matters if people don't feel that he's doing enough to make sure that everybody else can access the the NHS system with and the people who can't afford to pay have access to health care in the you know in a timely fashion and currently that really isn't the case that that's the problem with this whole thing Libby there's part of me that thinks that every time you know it's all splashed across the front of the mirror today one rule for the Rishi and all of that that actually <sighs> banging on about Rishi Sunak's GP is just sort of easier than coming up with a with a, a solution to what is an incredibly complicated problem which is the state of the NHS it's, it's a complete diversion, I agree. Um, I have to say, I've got skin in the game here. I had a bad spinal problem and pain and lameness cured by paying for an operation. But I also had in the same year my cancer cured by the NHS with some very expensive um, uh, chemicals. And I, I mean, I, I, I looked them up and, and it was eye-watering. So I'm delighted to be lame, not lame, and therefore able to go on working and traveling and so on and paying a lot of tax to pay back to the NHS. And I don't actually see a problem with some private procedures, you know, when they're not sort of life life threatening, um, being done to enable people to carry on. Uh, I do agree, though, that the Irish system of small payments to GPs is not a bad idea. They have a mass of exemptions, and we do need a certain amount of contribution from people who can genuinely afford to do it to keep the NHS running for those who can't. If you totted up all of the uh, all of the the the, the the, the, was it 370 million GP appointments in 2021, if half of them, assuming that you exempt half of people, if half of them you charge them £10 to attack, you're only going to get, I mean, it's almost £2 billion, which sounds like a lot of money. It's not really in the grand scheme of things 
uh, with the NHS. Is it worth doing? Is it was is it a fight worth Rishi Sunak picking? Uh, well, I think the the point about this is it's not about the money that you raise. It's about trying to discourage people from going unnecessarily to their GP and also from not turning up for appointments that they've made. But the the problem with it, I think it's worth looking at. Everything's worth looking at because the system is clearly not working. But the, the problem with the paying for the GP appointment, as I understand it, is that it's in, you know logistically and bureaucratically a nightmare and it will just add to the burden on GPs. That's what the GPs I've asked about it say that it's just not practical. You know, it wouldn't raise any money. There'd be so many exemptions. It would just turn into sort of bureaucratic nightmare. Um, that's the argument against. Um, but there does need to be something to happen because, the, um, you know, it's impossible to get a GP appointment at the moment virtually, you know, within the uh, timescale that most people would think is reasonable. And the GP contract, the way in which they're paid, is, is clearly broken. I thought it was really interesting. I did an interview with Wes Streeting at the weekend, the Labour health spokesman who floated the idea of salaried GPs instead of these kind of private contractors that GPs currently are. So Labour is now looking at really radical reform on primary care. Um, and I think in some ways it's what's fascinating is that it seems easier for Labour to kind of think the unthinkable on the NHS, perhaps because they're trusted with it more than the Tories traditionally are. Yeah. Um, so suppose... there's some really interesting things coming out of West Streeting, actually. It's really interesting that because they're so trusted on the NHS that maybe they can be more radical in a way that if the Conservatives try to do it, then it's seen as a sort of vehicle for privatisation, although every time that charge is made, I mean, if the Tories were going to try and privatise the NHS, you just thought they might have got around, with it, uh, around to it by now. Rachel, let's just mention, because um, we'll, we'll obviously come on and talk about strikes, the economic impact of that with Paul. Um, you've been, uh, in the latest Past Imperfect uh, podcast, you've been speaking to Pat Cullen, who's the, uh, the uh, head of the Nurses' Union, the Royal College of Nursing. Um, she's obviously talked about a lot about what's happening in politics right now, but this is a bit of her background because uh, she she was, uh, grew up in Northern Ireland. This is really interesting. This is where she's talking about her house being raided as a child. Let's take a listen. I remember being very young and my father had a rule, which was interesting, that we had to um, make sure that we had clothes left at the bottom of our bed so that when the army came to to raid the house as it was then that they would not come up the stairs into the girls bedrooms until the girls got changed out of their pajamas into into their normal clothes and that just became the norm for us um you'd have known that the door the door was knocked and um so how long did that happen mm, it could have happened it would have been it, there was times it could have happened twice a week that's extraordinary, that, uh, Rachel. And so what, what, what impact do you think all of that? We were talking about, you know, the impact of children, uh, people's childhoods on later life, talking about Harry. What impact do you think that's had on uh, Pat Cullen, her approach now to, to what got her into politics and her approach to, to the issues right now? Well, she, she said herself, actually, that growing up during the Troubles in Northern Ireland gave her this kind of determination to for the idea that a negotiated settlement is better than a bust up you know conciliation is always better than confrontation so although she is leading the nurses out on strike for the first time in their 106 year history she is also made absolutely clear she's open to compromise so she told us in that interview that you know she was willing to meet the government halfway which is a huge concession uh, and I think it's really interesting as well that Rishi Sunak now 
is using the language of being reasonable, you know, and he talked about how, um, you know, he said the government had always been willing to discuss pay. Well, that's not true. The government had refused to until now. So that kind of idea that growing up in at, at a time of conflict has made her, you know, much more determined to get a settlement, I think is really fascinating. Yeah, no, it really is. Uh, Rachel, uh, well worth listening to that. That's past imperfect, the podcast that Rachel does with uh, Alice Thompson. Get that wherever you're, you get your podcast from. Let's bring in now uh, the director of the Institute of Fiscal Studies, Paul Johnson. Morning, Paul. Uh, Paul, we were just talking about the NHS and uh, different ways of funding that. I know the Institute of Fiscal Studies has looked that a lot as well. Is there a, a great big idea that, that, that you and the IFS have come across that might help solve the NHS's problems that the government hasn't yet alighted upon? Well, as I said, there are three three big issues. One is the total quantum of funding. Um, the second is how that's uh, managed, whether it's done through a single big national entity like the NHS um, from government or through some other form of uh, getting the money to where it's needed. And the third um, is about the organisation internally within the uh, within the NHS and how it's run. I mean, I think actually we can probably park the second of those. I don't think there's a great deal of appetite or need to think about uh, moving to more uh, you know, private, uh, privately funded NHS or moving to the sort of big social insurance structures that they have often in the continent. I think it's a combination of the quantum of funding, which is probably inadequate, but probably more importantly in the short run is how the thing is organised. The relationship between the health service and its staff is terrible, on the whole, this is—it really isn't just a question of funding. It's a question of how uh, things are managed, how staff are managed. The morale among many is is poor, and not just because of the pressures, but because of the poor um, management. We all know that the um, IT systems and data management and so on uh, are, are not up to scratch. Now, how you sort that out is a really big and difficult question to which I don't have answers, but a combination of the funding and the management, and it really is important to get that management right, is is absolutely crucial. And Paul, it's the first time we've spoken uh, this year, so just get your crystal ball out. You're always a good barometer of these things. <laughs> what What is 2023 going to look like? Uh, we had Rishi Sunak last week saying it's going to halve inflation and get the economy growing. Andy Haldane, the former Bank of England's chief economist, said yesterday the government doesn't even have a plan for growth uh it, never mind one that's going to work what's your assessment of what what this year is going to look like economically how tough is it going to be and has the government got a serious plan to try and deal with it well i hope it's a lot more stable than last year at the very, <laughs> at the very least um we i can aim a bit higher is... than that surely <laughs> i mean the prime minister sort of set out his five pledges last week none of which were you know, really either were really pledges at all. I mean, halving inflation is basically just what the Bank of England's forecast is, and it's really not in the power of government to change that over the year. Uh, he didn't put a timetable on growth, really, and hopefully we will get back to growth at some point. I mean, I, you know, what I suspect we're going to have is a, is, is a somewhat difficult year in which real incomes continue to fall a little bit. And I hope we are back to growth by the end of the year. That doesn't mean we will grow over the year. I think that's pretty unlikely but as we look into 2024 um hopefully we'll be getting back to something approaching a growing economy uh, the uh, interest rates will probably go up a little bit maybe another half a percentage point or so uh, to four percent which is um much less bad than was being projected uh, three or four months ago so with luck we'll get away with a a fairly uh, a fairly shallow recession without too much in the way 
of additional unemployment, but it's a recession, I'm afraid, in which we are all going to share and that all of our incomes will probably be a little bit lower this time next year than they are now. Paul Johnson, always good to speak to you. Institute Fiscal Studies uh, Director Paul Johnson, thanks very much for joining us on Times Radio. Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester and, of course, Paul Johnson from the Institute of Fiscal Studies. You can read them all in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Redbox. Up next, we'll kick off our new series. It's Lara Spirit in the Archive and my interview with Ken Clark. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast, my chat with Ken Clark, coming up in just a moment. But first, a brand new feature. Yeah, it's a new feature that we are calling Lara Spirit in the Archive. Spirit <laughs> in the Archive. Lara Spirit in the Archive. <laughs> uh, Paul got in touch saying, it scans a bit better if you remove Lara from the title. You can still introduce her so l- listeners know it's her piece. So Lara Spirit, this is your piece. I'm fine with that. I think Paul might be right. So, uh, Red Box reporter Lara Spirit is here. Uh, she's been digging around in the archives. So what we've done, uh, two years ago, every week, Andrew Jimson counted down a different Prime Minister. Last year, uh, Nigel Fletcher did leaders of the opposition. So this year, we're putting them all together. And we're gonna, Lara's going to count down every general election since 1832, she'll explain why in a sec, using the Times archive. Do you see? So it's Lara Spirit, Spirit in the archive. <laughs> We, were, we wanted the spirit in the sky, but apparently the budget didn't stretch to a helicopter, so it's had to make do with the archive instead. <laughs> so, uh, Lara, explain why are we starting our countdown of general elections with 1832? We're starting in 1832 because that was when the Great Reform Act was passed, which is seen as kind of that first foundational move towards uh, democratic elections, kind of full and proper in the United Kingdom. Now, I'm sure we'll talk about why they were anything but <laughs> full democratic elections in uh, 1832 on for quite some time. Uh, but nonetheless, it followed a significant period of, of unrest uh, and it was a huge feat to be able to get that uh, bill passed, that big extension of, of the franchise. It and gave from- the vote to lots of people who previously hadn't had it. 
it gave the votes to lots of people. I mean, it gave the vote to about one in five men. <laughs> so well over 90% or so people remained disenfranchised. And of course, there was still about a century before we saw anything like mass suffrage. So um, it wasn't it wasn't this kind of mass democratic extension, but it was a, it was a very important step along that along that way in a very interesting time politically as well. And it also created MPs for the first time in some of the big towns and cities, rather than being all the rotten boroughs. People who watch yeah. Black Adder will know the rotten boroughs. You know, the, the the an area of swamp would have three MPs because that's just how they'd always done it. Yeah, Old Sarum, I think it was in Salisbury that had seven voters and returned two MPs, and then you had Manchester and Birmingham, which obviously had uh, had become very populated. And and this period is sort of the tail end of that first industrial revolution, uh, who had no representation in Parliament whatsoever. Uh, so it was it kind of sought to rectify that as well as extend the franchise, as well as as kind of you know speed up elections over a kind of two day period rather than a four. 40-day period, some system of registration, uh, and also to kind of end the so-called pocket boroughs, or as many of them as possible, whereby you'd have some people like, say, the 11th Duke of Norfolk, who'd control, uh, you know, something like a dozen of these seats. Uh, they were said to be in the pockets of these uh, land landowners, or, or indeed the Crown, uh, to try and end that as well. So it did have, a, a you know, a huge number of things that it, it wanted to achieve, and it was watered down uh, by the time it did pass. But it was an, it was a unbelievably different... I mean, reading it, you can't help but think of, of most moments like Brexit and they really pale in comparison to how much uh, opposition there was. There was rioting as a result of this. There was a hugely uh, kind of incomparably recalcitrant House of Lords at the time who tried to to block this twice uh, and and in the end uh, you know the Earl Grey who I'm sure we'll talk about the victor of our election uh, today who don't, is... Don't who, give away the end. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the plot is ruined. So let's talk about the 1832 election. And the point you were just making about voting over a long period, although we're talking about the 1832 election, 190 years ago today, they were still voting well into January 18... 18- 33. So it did, yeah, it, it took some time. Uh, and there were, uh, you know, the universities would would kind of vote a lot later. So this was, this ran from sort of December through to uh, January of 1833. But it's the first election that we saw after the passage of that yeah. great reform act. Uh, really, I mean, the archives are fascinating around this time, because of course, nobody really knows what to expect. The electoral map, which had remained relatively unchanged since about 1640, suddenly looks so fundamentally different. Uh, and the coverage is fascinating, because you have, uh, you you have Tories who, uh, you know, very recently kind of left uh, left government, but had previously been in charge for about seventy odd years uh, in these kind of hustings, trying to trying to persuade people to vote for them, and, and some of them clearly displaying a total lack of awareness about what these changes actually mean, uh, and, a, and a real kind of you know uh, I think desperation to try and win an election that they are very plainly from the beginning not going to be. Uh, not going to be winning. But there was, I mean, it's worth noting there were four general elections in the space of about five years over this period. There was 1830, there was 1831 that returned uh, the Whigs uh, and that election was largely fought on this issue of electoral form. Then we had 1832, this one that we're talking about today and then another one that we'll talk about uh, next week. So I know that we feel the last few years have been the kind of great acceleration of elections and we're quite fond of saying that politically (laughs) as a theory but actually... You look back and I don't There's think that's necessarily so true. Ken, Ken Clark was making clear a bit earlier on. Um, so then, uh, 1832, general election, 658 seats up for grabs. Let's get, give us some names then. You mentioned Earl Grey. Who are the main contenders in this election? So Earl Grey is uh, the Prime Minister going into this election and he is the namesake of uh, of the tea as well. Um, and he is one of the most interesting reformers of this time in politics. A year after this election, they'll pass the Slavery Abolition Act. 
Um, he enters Parliament at the young age of about 22. Uh, I think it was, you know, has a very interesting affair during his time in Parliament that remains, you know, doesn't seem to touch his reputation at all. He He's also no stranger to resignation. I mean, his premiership ends in a resignation, but also he resigns as Foreign Secretary in 1807. Uh, he's known as a kind of one of the great reforming minds of this time. And he has fought tooth and nail for this great reform uh, bill for some time, twice having failed before uh, this parliament to even get an inquiry into uh, electoral reform, constantly in, in battle with the House of Lords and actually at this stage uh, very differently constitutionally to what we have now. The king, who was resolutely opposed uh, to flooding the House of Lords with strings of new pro-reform peers when he asked him uh, to, which which kind of you know was the reason why we ended up seeing like, mass riots as a result of this legislation not getting through, but really the brainchild of uh, Earl Grey, who tries to push it through, who goes into this uh, election having championed this uh, this bill and having only in 1831 uh, won a kind of landslide election whereby electoral reform was the fundamental issue of the day. So feeling very comfortable so, going into this election. So it was because the Great Reform Act had passed, essentially the rules had changed, so they won... It's a the kind of a reset, yeah. Have, have fight an election exactly. on the new rules. So who was he up against? He was up against uh, the Duke of Wellington for the Conservatives, uh, who's had a kind of brief period, a brief stint uh, as Prime Minister at the, around this period anyway because uh, because Earl Grey failing to get this reform bill through uh, had a constitutional crisis where Wellington had tried to uh, form a government hadn't necessar- hadn't been able to because of the uh, the opposition to this though so he is the kind of favoured candidate by the king uh, at the time and and kind of recently in, in 1830 uh, had been had been Prime Minister kind of lost a vote of no confidence in a space of about two weeks uh, having declared that electoral reform was completely unnecessary Necessary in the present system, uh, you know, perfectly functional uh, and without the need for change. So he's not really going into this election in a particularly strong place anyway. But there's a bit of head in the sands uh, behaviour from a lot of the Tories around this time in the archive anyway, many of them. Uh, and I mean, ha- you, you can't really blame them, seeing as these days we're, we're completely inured to the fact we have people's opinions in some sense at our fingertips through a polling. I mean, yeah. they didn't have any idea of that at the time. But uh, I would say that having th- seen things like the Peterloo uh, massacre years before where 18 were killed protesting for stuff like this as well as a number of political uh, unions set up around the country to fight for electoral reform and that massive Whigs majority in 1831 in favour of reform. It's pretty strange to me that there was so much uh, denial at the time from these Tories and I think Wellington... It's it's Turkey's vote for Christmas almost, isn't it? That They realise that the the thing that they've created and enjoyed is crumbling around them as normal people. Not all of them, but some normal people are suddenly getting a say. That's true, but um, I think what they did do cleverly uh, in a kind of Machiavellian sense perhaps, or at least in a self-interested sense, is they did make sure that the Great Reform Bill came with caveats that would protect some of their larger interests. So kind of, though you did see an end to a lot of those pocket boroughs, you saw uh, these kind of tenureship agreements whereby, yes, you gave some people who were renting the vote, but largely understood that actually if you were giving them the vote, they would be voting as their landlord stipulated. So there were there were, <laughs> there were were parts of that bill that the Tories did. Perfect. They had little They had little victories the Tories in this bill, but you're right, largely Turkey's voting for Christmas. So fi- finally then, you've been reading a lot of this in the Times archive. What were the issues, what, were the, what was the key issue that people thought, was it still just arguing about the Great Format? And what, I mean, you've already given it away, but what was the <laughs> final outcome of this election in 1832? So um, a big victory for the Whigs, an increase in their already very large majority. Earl Grey wins 441 seats to the 175 that uh, Wellington secures. The big issue is looking through the archive when you see these kind of, they're great, they're sort of sketches that are sent in 
uh, in very small font, I have to say, uh, which seem to be from sort of hustings of various different candidates that are introduced by other people. But you have the kind of members returned in one small section. You have states of the polls. Uh, but there's a lot of uh, of comments which make me think quite a lot about uh, the current line that we hear very much from Labour about 12 years of Tory rule, 12 years of Tory rule. There's a lot of 70 years of Tory rule <laughs> in the archive at this time. Uh, and, and a sense among some of the Tories who are criticising the Whigs that they've had one very short term so far in their view to actually prove what they're doing. And actually they're, they're cleaning up for seven whole decades of what they see as Tory misrule. So that's a, that's a quite fascinating thing about some of these elections. Um, the rhetoric is great. It's very florid. Um, it's enjoyable and dense to read. Uh, and, and there's a lot of, there seems to be a lot of cheers all the time and a lot of laughter as well. So it actually paints a more lively picture of politics than I think we see at the moment. Definitely a more, I think, intellectually interesting one anyway. Lara Spirit though, and of course you can read Lara and Patrick Maguire in the Red Box email every morning just after 8.30. Just sign up. All time subscribers go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Red Box. Now it's time for this. Lord Clark, thanks very much for joining us on Times Radio. Um, I was looking back, you've been in a front line of politics for what more than 50 years now in the Commons and now it's in the House of Lords. And you've seen so many changes, changes of government, uh, parties come and go. And I, I was struck by a quote I stumbled across recently from Jim Callaghan when he talked about a, a sea change in politics. It happens, he said, every 30 years. Recent experience suggests it might happen a bit more often than that. There's a sea change in politics. It doesn't matter what you say or what you do, uh, there's a shift in what the public wants and what it approves of. He was talking about that in 1979, ahead of Margaret Thatcher coming in. Do you think we are seeing one of those sea changes now uh, in terms of the public shifting from the Conservatives to the Labour Party? I do. I don't think, I don't think either our politics or, or our economy are going to go back to where they were uh, before Brexit. Uh, and before the p pandemic, but particularly before Brexit, uh, I think there's been a t total change in the way we debate politics, in the mood of the public, and the standing of politicians, which has never been lower. Uh, and as far as the economy is concerned, uh, we're seeing the, the end of the globalised economy and the rules-based international order that we thought we'd established uh, 20 years ago. So, uh, yes, I think Jim Callaghan was very wise. I would have just say I agree with his quote. And I think right now we're on a... This is a real sea change. We've no idea quite what either politics or our economy will look like when we get back to something resembling normality again, which we're certainly not in at the moment. I mean, you clearly saw, you saw it in 79. You also saw it in, in 97. When you were Chancellor in the run-up to the 97 election, the economy was booming. Actually, you know, the economy was in pretty good shape. Politically, the Conservatives weren't. And you sort of handed over this golden inheritance to the Labour Party. You cut income tax, cut spending as a percentage of GDP, cut the deficit. But e even the economy doing well wasn't enough to, to shift the, the political sea change. Uh, we, we got a growth. We got a low inflation. Uh, we thought we knew how to handle monetary policy and you know fiscal policy. We finally knew how to sort out a modern economy. And what Tony and Gordon said when they campaigned in 1997 was that they would stick to my figures, was the way they put it, what the, the plans I had laid down for taxation and spending over the next year or two uh, for the first couple of years, and they did that. But they thought the election on the basis that economy wasn't an issue because Gordon Brown would run it as I did, which, again, he did for the first couple of years, and we uh, then had a bit of a boom, uh, and uh, 
he actually was running a large budget surplus by the time the two years was over. And was there a point when you were you were doing that, you were running the economy, was there a sense that you realised that you weren't going to be there after the election, but you were doing the right thing by the country, getting the, the country back into decent shape ahead of a likely change in government? Well, I, I, don't think, I don't think I'd have behaved differently whether I thought we were going to get in or not. And uh, I hadn't given up all hope of getting in. We'd won very surprisingly in 1992 with John's campaigning on his soapbox. Uh, and uh, you never know. The party had gone in for a suicidal, self-destructive civil war over Europe. That's why we lost. What's your sense of the approach by Jeremy Hunt and Rishi Sunak now? I spoke to... One of their colleagues, Charles Walker, Tory MP, a few weeks ago, and he he talked about how the party just had to accept they were going to lose the next election and set about fixing the economy as best they could in order to hand over the country in the best state possible. Do you think that's what Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt are doing now? I don't totally agree with that. Firstly, politics changes at any time. It's always capable of changing very rapidly in two years. It is utterly amazing uh, the way sometimes events take you by surprise and the political climate can change beyond recognition. So although obviously if you're a betting man, you're bound to say that the Labour Party are odds-on favourites at the moment, but it's not impossible you could win. And the only way they could win is if they demonstrate competence, if they look like a sensible, serious government and actually have people saying by the time the next election, well, uh, I suppose the lot we've got at the moment, look as though they know what they're doing and things are getting a bit better. You know, it, it's, it's, it's not impossible. I'm not quite so defeatist as that. Uh, <laughs> I also, having been a very disillusioned Conservative, you know, I, I don't have a vote anymore as a peer, so I'm not uh, any longer troubled by having to make my mind up whether I could really vote for the Conservative Party, which at times in the last four or five years I don't think I could have done. I, I do think, I feel a, I'm an optimistic, more reconciled, moderate Conservative, because at last we've got highly intelligent, sensible people, particularly Sunak and particularly uh, Hunt, uh, are just the sort of people we need at the moment, just to try to get a bit of stability and, and get, I hope, back to some kind of economic normality uh, uh, over, uh, over the next couple of years. They've got to resign themselves to being very, very unpopular for the next few months because uh, things are going to get worse before they get better. We're entering into a very nasty recession. We're in a recession already. Worst type of recession combined with high inflation, which will only come down slowly. Just put your tin hat on and do what you think is necessary to put the country back on a sound economic footing. It's not impossible they'll win the next election. The Labour Party is making yourself look a bit more electable, but the Labour Party hasn't sold itself yet to the public. But I'd be right in characterising it that when sort of during the Boris Johnson days and those few days of Liz Truss's premiership, that they were Conservative governments that wouldn't have got your vote. Well, I don't think they would actually. No, I mean a lot of I know a lot of Conservatives, people who like me, been active Conservatives for years, who really would have had hard work, hard work voting for the government in the, during the worst of the Boris Johnson, Liz Truss era. I mean, it was just extraordinary. And the, uh, I mean, I just don't hope the country doesn't have another experience like the Liz Truss quasi quartang budget. Uh, for you know another century, it, 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 it's uh, uh, in, in, unbelievable that sort of thing can happen with them. 
just going for a childish vote chasing amongst the better off middle classes, saying here we are in an economic crisis, a debt crisis, and uh, you know looming recession. So what we do? Oh, we'll cut taxes and increase public spending by astonishing amounts, uh, and that surely wins us votes. So, they don't do that very often in South America, let alone in a grown-up Western <laughs> democracy like our own. The one thing going for them is I think the public do see this as a totally new government. Uh, Labour may say that their Conservatives so they show they should be blamed for list trust as 44 days as much as any other Conservative, but the public may not see it that way. They may see that uh, these two were new, new, quite new in their particular roles. They took after after the crash, and if they can pick up the pieces and repair it, they have a chance of putting things together. Now, I mentioned you'd been in politics for a long time, and you uh, that politics can change, and election results uh, could be a surprise. Let's go right back to 1970, which was a surprise when Ted Heath won, and you won your seat from Labour. And so what was it like coming into politics then, and what was Ted Heath like as a, as a leader and a Prime Minister? He had no social graces, no small tarp hawk. He was a very wooden, awkward man and difficult to get on with, uh, but he was a very, very well-motivated politician. And I, I was a Heath acolyte. Uh, and I, I went into the Whip's office in his government. I became a member of his government as, uh, at the time when we were getting into the European community. I, I strongly believe, agreed with him on Europe. You won't be surprised to know. Uh, and and uh, I supported him. Uh, but that was his one great triumph. Uh, he, he, the thing that matters to him more than anything else was to get Britain properly involved in the European project, as he saw it. Uh, otherwise, he, 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 was, he was a strange, moody, rather paranoid guy, uh, and, and he did make some bad mistakes. We made some bad mistakes, I'm afraid, in running the economy. Uh, he had a rather weak Chancellor of the Exchequer, Tony Barber, who was rather dominated by his prime minister. And when things started going wrong, uh, and a lot was going wrong in the 1970s, uh, he had a. He made a dash for growth, and started spending money in the belief and, uh, that it would automatically uh, lead to the economy growing, which is always a mistake. And we handed over an economy in a pretty dreadful state uh, to our successors. Uh, and he was quite rightly removed from office from the electorate. The electorate removed Ted Heath from number ten, but then. It was Margaret Thatcher who removed Ted Heath as the Tory leader. Were you surprised by by that, that her, her decision to to run against him in 75? Well, she, she, nobody else would run against him. Ted, Ted, Ted would not step down. Ted had lost the election. He lost the support of the party, but they were all loyal to him. And Margaret only stood because nobody else would. She didn't expect to win. She never had expected to be prime minister. But I think she said publicly at one stage, well, if nobody else will run, I'm going to run against him. And she, of course, did amazingly well because a huge proportion of the party had decided we had to change. I voted for Ted, actually, again, out of loyalty, having been in his government, being a Heathite, but my personal view was he should have stepped down. But I didn't want Margaret as a leader. Uh, I will say that throughout my entire political career, I've never voted for the successful candidate in a Tory leadership election. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I, I corrected that recently as a paid-up member of the party when I voted for Rishi Sunak. Do you think that there's there's something in the idea that ten years of a of a prime minister? I mean, if you go back into sort of eighteenth, nineteenth century, prime ministers went on and on and on. Your Gladstones and Disraelis are kept coming back and so on. 
Thatcher lasted 10 years and then the wheels came off, but Blair had a similar problem. Do you think there's something in that? I mean, these days, lasting 10 weeks is, a, is an achievement. But do you think there's something in that, that the that actually for her to have gone on and on and on beyond 10 years was just very difficult? 10 years is the maximum permitted dose for adults. After 10 years in power, it's time to step down and work out how you're going to retire because uh, the, the, the fact is you, you've got two set in your ways. It's time for an, uh, a, a new broom. Uh, and you've, you've, over the years, you're bound to have accumulated all kinds of political wounds and just the sort of things that events force upon anybody who's trying to head up a, a government in a modern developed country like ours. And so 10 years is enough. I quite agree. Obviously, John Major did, and we've covered a bit of that period when you were uh, Chancellor. You know, he's, he's got this double-edged CV, if you like, isn't he, John Major? Yes, he lost in 97, but he won unexpectedly in 92 with more votes cast for him than I think any, any party before or since. That's right. He, well, and he personally won in 1992, where we were expected to lose... Uh, Neil Kinnock might have been quite a good Prime Minister, but he actually wasn't a very good Prime Minister candidate. The trouble with Neil was he was extremely talkative, and, and uh, you know, he was a particularly loquacious Welshman. And uh, when John Major got his old soapbox out and started going around the country and doing little open-air meetings, standing on a soapbox, he was always being drowned out, or, or they were attempting to drown him, drown him out, by extreme left-wing, rather nasty, rather potentially violent barrackers and so on. Uh, and those pictures on television brought across the, the niceness of John Major, the fact he was an earnest, well-intentioned, well-meaning chap. And the, the people barracking him got a lot of publicity for themselves, uh, the hecklers, and they gave, did the Labour Party a great deal of harm because people got the impression Neil Kinnock's Labour Party were somehow the kind of people who were barracking John. And he gave us another five years, which the party Eurosceptics promptly destroyed with all their antics all the time, carrying on and on and on about Europe. And then after 97, you sort of entered your period of um, uh, being in a perpetual Tory leadership contest. Do you think you ever came close? Well, I guess I think I would have won it if they hadn't changed the rules. Um, I got very close. I was expected to win it in 1997 when I would have been the natural, natural successor. I was ahead in every poll of the MPs. It was MPs only. But of course, they were trying to. I was a bit too pro European for the party, even in Parliament. Uh, and eventually, by the, the other candidates dropped out one by one, trying to find the one who could beat me. And William Hague beat me and lost the next election, and I would have lost the election. Tony Blair wouldn't have been defeated after just one parliament, I don't think. Uh, the nearest I got was when I won the MPs' election. It was after Hager gone. Uh, I then won the MPs' ballot, but then the top two went to the party membership, paid-up members. We got the new rules. So I won the MPs' vote. Uh, and went, uh, we went to the members and they voted for Ian Duncan Smith. You always have a slight vested interest in this, but I, w I wonder if you then have a view on whether party members should have a say. In, I have a strong uh, view that party membership should not decide it. Uh, they, they, can give their, they should give their MPs their views and the MPs will be influenced by what they know, uh, the opinions of their strongest and best party workers and all the rest of it. They won't ignore them, but they shouldn't have the choice. Uh, both parties also have the trouble that, the, although not all of them, 
the average party member is more right-wing than the average Tory voter, in the case of the Tory party, and more left-wing than the average Labour voter, in the case of the Labour party. And so I, I quite strongly feel that party members should not be given the final say. But I'm not sure anybody on either side has got the nerve to change it, because there'll be, of course, many of them will be very annoyed if they have that particular perk of membership taken away from them. You obviously came back into government under David Cameron in 2010. Theresa May arrived in 2016. Boris Johnson uh, in 2019. Liz Truss for four weeks this year. Now Rishi Sunak. How do they compare to some of the other uh, leaders and prime ministers you've served under? They're difficult, these comparisons, because well, I, the, 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 because they all dealt with different events in the different climates, as I've just said. But so, and I also I do try to guard against being an old veteran who has a rose-tinted <laughs> view of where we used to be, and 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 uh, you know says it's all marvellous in the old days, which is a uh, uh, then you really know it's time to retire and and uh, give it all up and just become an observer. Straight comparisons, it's a bit unkind. I've always say, I said in my autobiography, which the best prime minister I served under was Margaret Thatcher. Also said it was Theresa May as well. She was a bloody difficult woman. I had lots and lots of rows with her. Uh, she loved political arguments, and I had plenty of those. I wasn't a straightforward right-wing Thatcherite. Uh, but, but she knew what she wanted to do, and she was able to hold a government together. Let, let's not compare prime ministers there. What about of all the jobs that you've done, uh, of which there are... Lots what? Chancellor, we've talked about Home Secretary, Health Secretary, Education Secretary, Justice Secretary, Chancellor of the Duchess of Lancaster. Out of all of those, which was well, your favourite? Really career, yes. Uh, well, the two I had the longest stints at, uh, was able to make the biggest changes, uh, that's Health and the Treasury. I probably enjoyed being Chancellor more than any other because you're involved in every aspect of government, and it was a very interesting and exciting time. Health, because although you're, every Health Secretary is always faced with crisis, you're one of the most unpopular people in the country, uh, everybody resists changing anything, So, and I had some really terrible strikes, which everybody had to deal with in the 1980s. I was always in the middle of the most flaming political rows, uh, particularly with trade unions like the British Medical Association and my long ambulanceman strike. Again, history repeats itself. So your your advice to Steve Barclay, the current health secretary, then, on how you go about... We've had uh, ambulance drivers, paramedics out on strike, nurses uh, too, more strikes predicted. How can you solve that at a time when there's not a bottomless pit of cash to meet the demands of the unions? You, you, what you mustn't do is take cash out of the service in order to buy off people thinking they'll, they'll get more money than the independent bodies recommended them, uh, so long as they go on strike and cause difficulty. My ambulanceman strikes took seven months before they finally uh, packed it in, and the army uh, helped run the ambulance service then. That was particularly, that was very difficult. Uh, the lack of manpower, uh, planning is quite important. Uh, uh, and uh, how do we actually cope with the hugely rising demand as the ageing population and the huge expense of all the marvellous new treatments that we can now give, which weren't available until the last decade or two, how are we going to finance them, which has to be looked at? Again, I think because uh, uh, you obviously can't spend money that the country simply hasn't got, but the health service is swallowing it up and have a bigger proportion of GDP every year because it always gets more money every year, always has. But just how, what... what how to get it right and how to spend it properly and stop it being just swallowed up in, in predictable demands and 
uh, usual you know, rather short-term things. Well, I'm thinking that when you were health secretary, Margaret Thatcher wanted to pursue a, a system of sort of compulsory insurance to fund the NHS. Funding she wanted, she, the she NHS. thought the American system was marvellous, and I thought the American system was one of the worst in the Western world. And that said, so as soon as she appointed me, we settled down to having a whole lot of really extremely heated arguments. I had put the 14 or 15 meetings with her where she tried to pin into me that she wanted to go to the American insurance-based system, and I wanted the purchaser-provider way of handling the money and spending the money in the light of best-value patient outcomes, which I eventually persuaded her. Uh, it was a perfectly worthwhile kind of market-based reform that kept the principles of the service. We, that, that we, it's amazing. you know. She, I had all those rows of some on fundamental policies. All she ever did was promote me. <laughs> Do you think the NHS n- now can survive in the model uh, that it is? It, like you I said, it, it's a constant it source. I'm a great defender, I was, as I was to Margaret, of the basic principles of free at the point of delivery, given priorities according to uh, need, regardless of circumstances of the individual patient. It's a very high ideal it does mean, as health gets health demands of the population and ageing population get ever higher, it, as it gets more expensive, uh, that it really is taking up an ever, impre- ever, ever increasing amount of GDP, although we're not up to the level of some young European countries yet. Um, we, we can't take a small state approach to it. Uh, we can't demand European standards of public service, but continue to pay below European levels of taxation, which some of the right wing of the Conservative Party seem to want to do. Uh, I, I do think, and I would, I would, I would have reacted to this ferociously at any time until the current crisis. We may have to look at some means of making the better off patients making some modest contribution. Uh, to their treatment, which we always have in the case of prescription charges. The Labour Party used to have tremendous rows about whether everybody should get free prescriptions or you should have prescription charges, and that's now taken for granted that we do pay until you become a pensioner, however well off you are as a pensioner, which is an anomaly. We do pay prescription charges, and we may have to look for other small payments. For you know, It's just possible. I've not converted yet. But I do understand why people are saying that. Uh, those who say they just want to go to a, a wholly insurance-based system, go to the American system, I'm still as flatly opposed to that as ever. So you mean rather than sort of say, well, if you're well off, you've got to pay for the full cost of your treatment, it might be that you pay, you have to pay to go and see your GP, that sort of thing? Uh, yes, or pay a, pay, pay a, pay a set sum, uh, a, a flat level for uh, going to a GP, uh, obviously, you have to exempt all the people who, for whom you can't, can't charge. It has to be, has to be means tested, which is a bit of a problem. Uh, but e- even some routine procedures, we might, you know, it's possible. But I, you know, I, I, sh- I shouldn't be answering this question because I haven't thought it through. As you may get, <laughs> I only embarked on reforms of the health service after a very great deal of work uh, and uh, discussion with expert people on what might work and what might not. Yeah. When I embarked on the health service reforms that I did, uh, it wasn't the result of uh, chatting to a, you know, <laughs> an interviewer on, on a radio programme, however engaging that may be.
we, we can't rule it out because uh, we always increase public spending in real terms every year. It may be paying for it all out of taxation. It's, I think it's now should be regarded as respectable to discuss about alternatives. Just following then from one, one major institution, the NHS, to the House of Lords, where you are now, uh, is that an institution that can survive, do you think? Keir Starmer's talked about wanting to replace it altogether in the elected second chamber. I've always been in favour of ab- abolishing the House of Lords from the moment I started in politics. It's indefensible in a modern Western democracy. I, I like being there. It's a privilege to be there. I think the quality <laughs> of debates sometimes very good. I, I mean, in my retirement, it's a very nice place for me to go and be surrounded and immerse myself in the political atmosphere, but it's it's, it's indefensible, it's composition and and, uh, and so on. And I've always thought it should be replaced by an elected chamber with stronger powers. I long ago gave up believing anybody would do that, although uh, because once parties win power, they don't want a strong upper house of parliament. And it's very, very difficult to get anything through Parliament because the Commons doesn't want a competitor. And some of the older members of the Commons think they're going to go to the House of Lords eventually. And the peers are very sophisticated in the way they resist reform. So if you'd asked me this question 50 years ago, I'd have said I think the House of Lords should be abolished. But I've seen various attempts at it and reform and so on, and they've all made very modest progress, though it's not quite as absurd as it was all those years ago when most of them were hereditary. Uh, and when you're not at the House of Lords, do you, do you pop up to Ronnie Scott's these days? Are you still enjoying the jazz? Oh, no, I'm too old for jazz clubs, and I can't birdwatch anymore, and uh, I, I don't think, you know, I don't listen to as much jazz as I used to, because I don't like sitting on my own, just listening to music, rather. I sometimes find feel it's a rather odd thing to be doing, but... Uh, no, I, I look back fondly on my great days at Ronnie Scott's, which I I used to go regularly once a week at the late at night when the house had risen, the mate usually, and I asked, I carried on doing it as a minister for a time. But uh, I've, I've, over the years, I've gone into Ronnie Scott's occasionally, but I don't. I think that's all. Well, it's all in my youth. I can now look back off and, and fondly in my retirement. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.